Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. Now I get to start pointing down to the comment section again. <laughs> All right, guys. So welcome back to another show. Thank you for inviting me into your home to answer your questions for this week. And we've got some pretty good ones. But at first, I wanted to plug the podcast for this week. It was a uh, nice long chat I had with John Atack. Uh, we have probably done 25 or 30 episodes or something together at this point. So many conversations, so much good information in them. And this last one I am particularly fond of because we covered critical thinking in some real detail. And this is something that I have not done in a while. And I have developed a lot of new ideas and thinking about critical thinking and kind of come to a place of understanding of it that is far better than it used to be. And so I wanted to talk about that and um, and sort some things out on that with John, and we did. And uh, we had a great conversation about that. We then got into the topic of human predators. And this is something you're going to be hearing more from me about because um, narcissists and, you know, these kind of more diagnostic kind of words are words I'm going to be moving away from as much as I can, except when I'm using them in an extremely precise way. Uh, if I use the word narcissist, I mean narcissist, not just some random insult. And it's not always been that way. And I've been, it's been loosey goosey and difficult and, and a problem because these words, these diagnostic words, um, are, uh, they are, they are laden with problems. There are, there are a number of issues with using them as pejoratives or insults and stuff like that. And it gets used so often that way that we're on an effort to try to sort of go away from those psychiatric labels. Uh, because you, me, you know, non-psychiatric people really have no business calling other people with these diagnostic labels. They're, it's not accurate. It's not helpful. It doesn't, it doesn't clarify anything. It doesn't make us feel any better or them uh, feel any better by doing that. And there are other words we can use that really do the job without having to get into diagnosing this person's mental condition. Um, and so again, unless I'm being super, super precise and then like I'm talking about certain cult leaders who I feel very justified and can back up with evidence why I would use diagnostic labels like narcissist to talk about somebody like L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige. Um, but to just throw that label around to people you don't like, don't want to be, you know, don't don't think, know what they're talking about, or are self-absorbed or egotistical, fine, call them self-absorbed and egotistical. <laughs> you know, it's a big difference from calling somebody a narcissist. Um, so anyway, just wanted to kind of throw that out there. And that's just one of many terms that we are misusing and abusing. And that's why I'm trying to sort of, uh, you know, say, hey, let's try doing something different. And in this, this is not at all what we, what John and I got into. We really went much more into, you know, what human predators are, why they are, what they're acting like, et cetera. So anyway, I hope you guys will check out the podcast for this week. And with that big, huge plug, I also wanted to thank uh, recent Patreon um, signups and, and startups on that. Not everybody wants to be named by name, but I do want to go out of my way to acknowledge and thank those of you who have signed on with Patreon lately. I really appreciate the support and um, and and the channel, of course, uh, deserves it. So thank you very much for that. And I hope you guys who are liking and supporting this channel will continue to do so and uh, that we will get more on board with this. All right. So with all that being said, let's get on with your questions for this week. Michael Yoder. 
Given the level of control in Scientology, do you think that LRH was influenced by George Orwell, 1984, Animal Farm, and Aldous Huxley, Brave New World? Those books are about controlling society and how people are allowed to behave, think, and feel, and fit within Steve Hassan's bite model. Curious about your thoughts on how those works affected the development of Scientology and other cults. Okay, Michael, thank you for this. Um, clearly, L. Ron Hubbard did know about or read from uh, 1984 because he comments on Orwell uh, in a few places, in some lectures and in some written work. And he actually wrote a policy, which I broke down, about propaganda by redefinition of terms. And this is the title of a policy letter that Hubbard wrote. So he was well aware of the fact that words are important, words have power, and that you could redefine words and engage in propaganda or an effort at mind control or thought reform by, you know, using and abusing words. So did he learn that from Orwell? Probably not. See, one thing about people like Orwell, Algis Huxley, and other writers who have fictionalized or written nonfiction works about abusers or uh, leaders who take advantage or you know, these, the, you know the, the, these bad people, right? Uh, authoritarians, totalists, uh, as, as uh, Lifton likes to call them. And I prefer the term totalist to authoritarian because it, it's, it's a totalist sort of thing. You, you want all these people, all these followers to be completely, totally committed to your cause or effort or you as an individual when you're a cult leader or, uh, you know, one of these totalist types. So we've got a number of those people around. And I think these writers were simply observing human behavior and fictionalizing and writing about that in order to try to teach or, you know, get people to, to see, hey, wake up, folks. You know, there are people out there who do this and you need to be aware of it because they're doing it to you. And, you know, this is kind of important stuff. And we think in stories so much easier than we think with facts and figures and numbers. So, you know, the, the artists and the writers have really had the advantage in leading the way and showing up and pointing out problems in our society, this being one of them. Um, so Hubbard himself was a writer, but he was a very poor writer and he was not much of a reader. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing with Hubbard to, to gauge exactly. I can't sit here and say for sure Hubbard did or didn't read 1984, Animal Farm, Brave New World. I, I don't know. Um, he certainly would have claimed to, and he did talk about them, but that doesn't mean he read them. Hubbard was, as John and I have gone over a few times, Hubbard was not much of a reader. He was the kind of guy who liked to have people explain the books to him or go read the Reader's Digest condensed versions, which used to be immensely popular, by the way. Uh, you know, you don't see those around a whole lot now. But he was a, he was a Cliff Notes kind of guy, you know, and that was how I think he got through a lot of his schooling was, you know, cheating the system or trying to game it. Getting, he, he bragged in lectures, for example, about getting other people to take his tests for him, and then he would do some writing assignment for them or something. You know, so he was so he was always about gaming the system. So Hubbard was sort of organically or naturally the kind of totalist personality that these authors write about. And you don't need to go read about these kind of of personalities to be one or become one. It's, it's sort of like you are one and you fall into circumstances or conditions or you create circumstances or conditions where you're able to influence or take advantage of other people. 
And the more you do that, and the more clever you are about it, and the more successful you are at it, the more you do it. And this is Hubbard's, you know, operating pattern through all of life as he was sneaking and sliming his way in and out of his responsibilities and duties in the military, in college, in his professional life, and most especially, of course, in his personal life and his married life, being a serial philanderer, that sort of thing. The man could not keep a commitment, could not keep a promise, no matter how light, how, you know, uh, serious, you know, no matter where it was, just honesty and integrity and, and honor were complete strangers to L. Ron Hubbard's way of life and way of thinking. So, um, so, I, so basically what I'm saying is I, you know, I don't know that L. Ron Hubbard, you know, read and learned from these books how to do what he did better. It's certainly possible. But I don't know that um, the more I've learned about these kind of people and the more deep dives I've done in studying, you know, the, the, the L. Ron Hubbards and David Koresh's of the world, the more it's come very clear to me that it really that these are people who are opportunists, who are always looking for the angles, are always making angles if, they, if none exist in order to con people or, or get one over on people for their own advantage. And they just become so practiced at it, and it's such an it's, it's such an approach to their life that they end up being people who who approach their lives and think about other people in very different ways than you and I do. Um, you and I, I tend, I, I I believe, tend to think about other people as okay. Well, they're not us, but they're valuable. They're important. They're you know they're equals to us, or they are people who we should listen to or tolerate the existence of at least. And get along with because this is society. This is how we. This is how we do things. And you don't. And you. What you don't do is you don't look to other people and immediately start calculating what advantages this person will give you or you can have over on them if you abuse them, uh, scream at them, yell at them, or somehow get control of them. And what can they do for you if you do that? And that's how you think about other people. Or you look at group situations and you go, how can I take advantage of this situation so that they are they are empowering me and I am depowering them? Because they could, you know, if they see me for who I really am, then I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So I need to make sure they don't. So I need to, I need to mouth sounds. I need to say words that they will think make me into this, you know, amazing person. And Hubbard was was quite good at that. Life of the party, really big social person, always taking conversations over, very dominating, you know, kind of personality. When he was in the room, he always liked to be the guy in the room. And he always, of course, considered himself the smartest guy in the room or the cleverest guy in the room, even if he wasn't. Uh, which he very rarely was. I mean, it was very rare that that Hubbard was had the upper hand on people for real, but he would always make it out that he did. So anyway, I'm kind of going on and on about this, but I'm just trying to answer the question of, you know, well, where did L. Ron Hubbard come up with his ideas? Where does this where where is this bent come from? And it's kind of it's it's a lot more organic. You know, it's not necessarily as learned behavior as, as some of us would would maybe take some comfort in in thinking. Um, it's, it's just that their outlook, what I'm trying to stress is that the outlook of a totalist personality or, you know, a narcissist or a, a narcissistic personality is fear is, is based in a, 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 a core of fear 
with uh, layers of um, deception and anger and a whole lot, a whole lot of lying to themselves uh, about themselves, their condition, their, their place in the world, their importance in relation to other people their ability, their skills. I mean, there's a lot of layers going on to these personalities. And learning from other similar personalities could certainly be part of that picture. But when it came to L. Ron Hubbard, I don't know that that was actually necessary. I think he sort of figured things out by the process of life and living, how to, how to you know, sort of uh, mess with people or manipulate people. And sometimes it worked. And a lot of the times it did not work. Hubbard was pretty much, I mean, if we if we believe what we've read from other soldiers in the military who were around him when he was active duty, he was not well-liked. He was not well-respected. He was uh, somebody who people thought of as a, as a slacker and, a, and, a, and an avoider and somebody who was didn't do work or tried to wrap other people up in his schemes and plans to avoid having to work or having to, you know, do his duty and that kind of thing. We see a lot of that. But we also see this bipolar sort of thing with him where some days he's super on and other days he's absolutely miserable and in the drinks and, you know, in, in the cups and and uh, doing the, the the reds and greens and all of that. So, so he's, you know, so Hubbard was kind of all over the place, depending on what time you were talking to him <laughs> of the day or uh, year or whatever. Uh, so lots and lots of stuff going on there. But um, that's, I don't know, that's, that's, I, I hope that answers the question or addresses the question. I tried to speak on Hubbard's personality there and where I think some of those, those things came from. And I, I hope that I succeeded. AC, in my life, I've had numerous occasions where I've discussed religion with local Christians who've attempted to add me to their fold. Being an open-minded, critical thinker, I have had no issue discussing the topic with them. However, one thing has always frustrated me. They will not put the Bible down when talking about their faith, even when I ask them directly. Everything they say is related to or directly from the Bible. Is this common in religion? If I could somehow get them to put aside the holy book, would I be more successful in arguing my point, which is that unfortunately there likely is no God, and we die, and that's the end of it. I figure that they're going to try to convert me. I am free to express my view as well. They initiated the conversation, not me. Anyways, thanks for answering, and keep up the good work. All right, AC, thank you for this. Um, God, there's a lot of layers here, of course, but I think what I want to say on this is that... Um, we invest, you know, I, I can't talk in, in a lot of detail about this because I don't know, you know, as much as I would like to know about this, but symbols and icons and um, books, you know, uh, th these things that sort of are symbolic of our beliefs or, you know, our idols, <laughs> you know, uh, these are important to us. These, you know, there's a lot of words for this, but at the end of the day, it's, it's something or some symbol that represents all kinds of concepts and beliefs and ideas that we have good, bad, right, wrong, all over every spectrum. You know, I can show you certain symbols and you will immediately have, you know, certain reactions to them, a visceral emotional reactions. Um, I can show you other symbols and, and, and other books and things, and you have nothing, and nothing would register at all because there was no significance or emotional investment at all in your life connected with those symbols or signs or books. 
The Bible happens to be one of the most symbolic representations of Christianity, Islam, uh, Judaism. I mean, there's a lot in this book. There's a lot invested in this book. It's the big book. It's the, it's the holy book. It's the book with a capital B. So the Bible has a tremendous amount of cultural significance and can then therefore translate over into a tremendous amount of individual significance for individual believers who are told that the Bible is the, you know, sort of ultimate expression or ultimate uh, uh, rendering of God's will and God's word. This book is exactly precisely what God said or what God wanted us to read so that we would get his, you know, holy word and be inspired and, and uh, our faith renewed or created or bolstered or whatever. Um, and that's why you'll get people who will, who especially, con you know, people who are trying to convert you, people who are uh, out proselytizing. This, they feel so strongly about the power of this that they want to share the good news. They want to get this to you. They want you to understand this and live by the same faith and the same tenets. And they believe, of course, that by doing so, they're ensuring their place in the kingdom. And they are also doing this because they, they have told themselves and they believe, and I'm sure it's true, uh, that they, for the most part, <laughs> that they have a lot of compassion and caring for other people and they want to, uh, you know, um, save them. Uh, so the Bible represents, it's sort of a thing that gets to represent all of that, right? All of those good intentions and good ideas and God and all of that gets, gets, gets put in there. So when you, when you take that away or try to remove that out of the conversation, <laughs> Right, it's kind of like inviting somebody to a meal and then taking the food off the table. Like, what are we doing here? Like, you know, suddenly, wait a minute. I thought we were like, like this is for, from their point of view, from the from the proselytizer's point of view. This is this is it, it, this is what you need. This is the thing that has all the truth in it. It's not the individual proselytizer believer who has the ability to convince you of the truth. It's this book that does because. They believe this book is what convinced them and is the reason for their fervent, ardent belief. So they want to pass that on to you, right? So in other words, it's all invested in that. You know, you could have the same degree of investiture in the book Dianetics <laughs> or Fundamentals of Thought, uh, Scientology books, right? Where, you know, Hubbard was really, really big on, you know, sell them books. You have to get the book in their hand. Now, you could say that was just a money grab or a cash grab to sell his books, but Hubbard knew that he had a way with words and that he could convince a certain, it was a numbers game, and if he could get his books into people's hands, uh, and remember, this is back in the 50s and 60s when people predominantly read books, uh, you know, and they weren't online, so buying a book, having a book, especially Hubbard stressed a hardcover, big book, a weighty book. That gives it a more weight, more significance, more importance. And for people who believe that things are important and are, and are um, symbols of their faith and uh, contain all the holy words of their faith and that this book is the thing that's going to convince you, 
you know, this is this. It's not. I'm, I'm drawing the Dianetic uh, comparison here to show that it's not just Christians who do this. Um, you could do this with the Quran. You could do this with um, uh, the Torah. You could do this with any other holy book. I'm sure there's Sanskrit books or Buddhist books or you know uh, those kind of things. So it's it's just a matter. You know, I'm obviously sitting here talking all about symbols and 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 icon icons and and things and how we invest in them. So I guess I just wanted to comment on that part of it because it was such a prominent part of your question here. And with such people, I would say you're going to have a real hard time separating them from that book because it's the, see, there's a, there's a view, a, a view that has been expressed, um, you know, in the, in the atheist Christian battleground that I see online all the time. Um, there are people who have, who have asserted that um, Christian, that there are some Christians, not all, I'm not painting with a broad brush here, but there are certainly more than a few who are more Bibleists than they are Christians. In other words, the Bible is their thing more so than Christ or even that whole resurrection and the faith and just having this kind of idea of, uh, you know, of personal resurrection or, or salvation and stuff, they go way, way, way more into, into it. And the, and, and the Bible becomes this exaggerated, this thing of exaggerated super importance. So maybe that's some of what you're running into there too. But, um, but people need their symbols. And, uh, and the fact is that most people who are out proselytizing are doing so because of a fervor that they feel more than the knowledge that they have. It's, a, it's an emotional thing. It's much more so than it's an intellectual thing. There's a little bit of knowledge. I got some Bible quotes for you. I've got some stories to tell you. But mostly what I want to get across to you is this represents this incredible feeling, this ardent fervor, this, this love we have for Christ, this love we have for God, this love we have for you. It's just so wonderful, right? And that when they're talking that way, that's when you're really at the core of this, you know, this sort of uh, euphoric love, admiration, you know, fervor kind of feeling that is really what's kind of driving a lot of that. I, that's what I've seen, at least, and experienced. I haven't, I haven't read widely of this, but what I've seen and experienced, that's what I can sort of comment on about it. Um, I hope I'm not painting with too broad a brush in talking about this. I know that there are people who have other intentions and ideas when they're out proselytizing, but this is what I've seen and run into, and certainly what I think you're describing in your question here. Um, and as far as arguing back, you know, argue away, but realize that they're not, based on everything I just said, right, and, and everything else I know about this, these are folks who are not believers because they reasoned their way into it. So attempting to reason them out of it is probably not going to get you anywhere. Uh, and this is the constant battle that goes on in the atheist world that I am pretty much just tired of at this point because it's just so exhausting <laughs> you know? that people uh you know come out of these faiths or beliefs and and think they're going to argue people out of it and it's and it's just doesn't it doesn't really work that way because that's not why people get into it and it's not why people get out of it um and that's uh it, you know in the most part i'm not saying that there isn't anybody who never reasoned their way out of religion but um 
uh, generally speaking, it has a lot more to do with emotional breaks and and uh, emotional ties and and social hierarchies and stuff like that than it has to do with uh, reasoning and uh, applying a lot of you know intellectual thought to the religious process. So anyway, I don't know. Uh, let me know what you think about that answer. Steph CLO. What do you feel would be your top five reasons slash happenings of Scientology implosion in the past two decades? As an example, it could be Mike Rinder's blog, the Going Clear doc, your channel, looking at a two-decade view. All right. Thank you for this question. It's a good one. Um, and it's tough. It's a tough one because I actually sat and sort of dot, 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 dot through five things. Um because I might be insulting people <laughs> a little bit here, uh, but this is just from my point of view, okay? And, and everybody's got their own point of view on this, and and whatever it is that's that's changed people's minds about Scientology could be, you know, whatever. But as I see it, there's been a chain of events that have occurred that have basically exposed Scientology in waves of exposure in a very, very public way. And while none of that exposure could ever have occurred without all the work that was done before, you know, like I said many, many times, we are standing on the shoulders of giants in the work that we do. Um, I, you know, we have the Jerry Armstrongs and Lawrence Wallersheims of the world and, and uh, the people who went after Scientology in the courts in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and took all, just boatloads of shellacking for it. And those are names that are now in the history books, so to speak. They're, they're, they're not publicly speaking out a whole lot anymore. They're not really around. Some people have moved on or passed on. Um, and so all of that initial work that was done, I'm talking about back in the ARS days and you know all that kind of stuff, that all had to happen for any of this later stuff to happen. And I, and I always go to great pains to try to point that out because I don't want to forget about those people and I don't want them um, to feel like their story wasn't important, wasn't part of this big picture or part of why it is that we were able to strike such hard blows against Scientology. It was because of, of what they were putting out there. And, um, you know, in the early days of the internet and the early days, even pre-internet. Now, the five things I think in the past two decades that have built on all of that, that have allowed or have, have, have broken, you know, uh, Scientology, basically, come down to this. First, there is the 2008 anonymous international campaign of protests and uh, work that was done um, taunting the church, teasing the church, uh, attacking the church sometimes in ways that I didn't particularly think were smart. But Mark Bunker did a great job of kind of uh, tampering some of that, reeling some of that uh, angst and energy in and, and focusing it so that they were more effective by engaging in mass public protests outside Scientology organizations all over the world. That drew a tremendous amount of press and media attention. And Scientology was not powerless to fight back, but it was powerless to effectively fight back. They could not. There were a couple of people that they got uh, names of and that they uh, prosecuted who were anonymous members who were doing some stuff that wasn't really too cool. But for the most part, um, it was a, a one-sided battle and Scientology lost. Bad. Bad. Um, they, in fact, they've never recovered because that was just the first of a number of things. The second thing being... Um, Mike Rinder and Marty Rathbun both coming out high, high level defectors. 
uh, both of them. And um, they were able to credibly expose David Miscavige and his physical abuses. And everybody else who came out after that, Tom and... Um, Oh, God, Amy, Scobie, and the other people who came out around that time or after and started speaking up, Mark and Claire Headley, even before Mike and Marty. But that kind of that, that happening, that gaggle of people, because what that resulted in was the SP run or the truth rundown uh, in the St. Pete Times. And that got international attention and exposure because it was a multi-article breakdown of Scientology's abuses in the here and now, in the 2000s, not ancient history from the 70s, 80s, or 90s. Um, so that was a really, really big deal, that 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 um, series of articles and the people who came out and came forward to make those articles happen. So that was, um, so I'll say Mike and Marty on that one as the leaders of that charge, so to speak. But again, I, you know, you say stuff like that and then it's like, well, what about Mark and Claire? What about Tom? What about Amy? What about these other people who wrote books and were speaking out too? So all of them, right? It, you know, even um, on that line, Tori uh, was, was prominent in that. But the SP Times thing is what the product was that exposed the Scientology in the big way. And that's, um, that's what I think was huge in that time. Following that, of course, or uh, around that was the Debbie Cook email. That cannot be uh, taken too lightly or forgotten about. That, that influenced me and my leaving, as well as so many other Scientologists. Um, that was a bold move. It was uh, Debbie and, and others put that together and got that out there. And uh, immediately there was a backlash from the church, and Debbie owned them because attorney Ray Jeffries uh, got her to testify on the stand for about four or five straight hours about the whole. And, you know, people didn't know about this stuff. And this wasn't in the court record before. And nobody knew what the hell she was talking. What? 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 You know, and uh, and so, you know, all of this stuff again coming out. And Scientology capitulated and folded immediately, right? Hey, shut up. Shut up. Quiet, quiet. Here, you know, take all this money and just go shut up and go away, right? And she did. Because if she hadn't, there could have been, you know, pretty drastic consequences for her. And, you know, it's easy to uh, look back and judge people on that. But um, it, it, having been around during that time and, and being part of that, uh, I, I think Debbie was, was justified in what she did. Then we have the Going Clear documentary, Alex Gibney and Lawrence uh, Wright's, uh, Lawrence Wright's book made into a documentary where, again, all these people got to speak on camera the whole story got to be told, and um, and more exposure of the whole. Uh, Alex Gibney is a brilliant documentarian. He really is. And he did a great job with that. And then finally, number five is Scientology in the Aftermath. There is nothing that has hit Scientology like Scientology in the Aftermath, but only because it built on all these earlier things. If Scientology in the Aftermath had just come out all on its own, it would not have had the impact it had uh, but because of all these earlier things, it was a chain reaction. And so, you know, Emmy-winning, award-winning document, you know, series, uh, like Mike and Leah putting that together and uh, fighting with the producers every season to get the stories told, put it out there, get the truth out there about this. Um, and that's, and that, you know, and that happened. And it was, and it was as good as it was, and it was exposure, uh, it was exposing as it was, because Mike and Leah were at the helm and because the other Scientologists and ex-Scientologists rather that they got on board, as well as the other professionals um, who they interviewed on those, on those 
during those seasons. So, you know, just a just a runaway success at exposing Scientology's nonsense. And it's still running on Netflix right now. So, uh, you know, so you can see it anytime you want. And lots and lots of millions and millions of people have. It was one of the, I think it was the second most, if not first most popular documentary ever shown on HBO when it first, you know, the going clear documentary rather. And then we have the Scientology in the aftermath coming after. So anyway, both of these things, really, really big deals. And, um, okay, so those are my five points. Now, I'm going to add to this, though, something that that kind of is a glue that kind of holds all these together. And so I have to put it in here. It, it cannot be forgotten about or denied is Tony Ortega's blog. Because that has been the place where um, outside journalists or other media interests have always gone to, always gotten the skinny. Daily Mail and and TMZ and other places are constantly, you know, taking stories from Tony's blog where he's breaking them. He has done championship work for you know well over a decade now on um, on Scientology and its abuses, uh, and he's done a really good job of that. And he's done it every day of the week. I mean, that's, I'm telling you, man, that is not easy work to do, uh, not by any stretch of the imagination. It's just not. So Tony deserves huge accolades for uh, the work that he has done exposing every single aspect of Scientology. I mean, there's just been nothing that has not been covered on his blog. He has gone to every level, every part of it. And I, and I can't validate him enough for that work. So those are the things I think are the five things with the glue of Tony's blog, keeping it all together. I think that my work, Tori's work, Karen's work, you know, the other YouTubers and the stuff that we do, it doesn't, it doesn't not matter, but I wouldn't put any of us in the top five in terms of influence or uh, what we've done to expose Scientology. We've done some really great work, but I think these five things are the things that actually have made, have turned the tide you know, and, and when you look at what I mean by that, we're talking about, you know, lower numbers of members than ever before, cancellation of the RPF, uh, a, a lessening of the, uh, you know, uh, just draconian uh, abortion crap they were pulling, and a lot of other, you know, abusive stuff. But Scientology can't change its spots. It's, you know, we've gotten some changes with that. But then we find out during COVID that Miscavige amped up the pain in other ways. Because there's a point that needs to be made about David Miscavige that I only just kind of clicked on, uh, actually re listening to a uh, clip of a Jordan Peterson clip talking about Hitler, of all things. But it, it kind of triggered, I, I was like, oh, right, you know, with a light bulb. And this is kind of important, so check this out. I'm not quoting Jordan Peterson here. Don't don't. If you hate Jordan Peterson, you can keep hating Jordan Peterson. That it was only a thing that clicked for me. Point is, David Miscavige is not about the mission of Scientology. Whether he believes in it or not, whether he wants it to grow or not, it's abundantly clear that he is not doing what L. Ron Hubbard was trying to do. And, or at least what L. Ron Hubbard said he was trying to do. David Miscavige is not honestly following that same path. He is in it for power. He's in it for money. He's in it for influence. And mostly he's in for it because I, I believe because there are people, there are people who want to watch the world burn. There are people who want to create as much chaos as they can. 
that's their product. That's what they do. That's what they want to do. That's actually their desire. They they don't you know the, the everything they say they're doing is just window dressing. It's just it's just words they say. What they're really trying to do is tear the hell out of everything as much as they possibly can. And everything they do is moving always in that direction of ripping people up, destroying things, and causing chaos. And that's, you know, that's that's Hitler, that's Miscavige. I mean, these were people, these are people who have made real-world decisions that are completely irrational, follow no logic of any kind connected with what they've said their purpose or intention is. What they do is is not that, and it's so much not that that in, in, in review of it, you have to go, they never intended to do what they said they were going to do. They always intended to just screw things up. That's Hitler. That's Miscavige. And, um, and, I, and so when you, you know, wonder, why does he you know, reframe, the, reframe the point of view that you're coming at it from? To, and there's two things on that. One, um, you know, this is a person who's just trying to tear things up and cause chaos. And two, Scientology is a money-making scam, first and foremost. And if you know those two things and you think about Scientology or and, – and by, you know, uh, comparison, other destructive cults fit into this in one way or another – you're, if you try to make sense of it by looking at what they say they're doing and then try to look at that from a logical point of view, none of it will ever make sense. But if you look at it from the point of view that it's a money-making scam run by a person who wants to cause as much chaos as he possibly can before he dies, and that's what his thing is, then everything makes sense about it. Suddenly, it all makes complete and total sense. And everything about it is a total lie. And you realize that it has to be a total lie in order for it to continue to exist the way that it does. And so that's what I wanted to get into on the answering this question. I hope that that really long thing gave you some things to at least uh, some food for thought and stuff to think about. And I'd love to hear your, um, your responses or comments on that in the comments to this video. So uh, let me know. Oscar Q. Zilch. It seems to me that tons of Scientology celebs have worked on films and movies that feature people not being absolutely quiet during scenes of violence or trauma, something which, according to Dianetics, causes debilitating engrams. Unlike removing engrams, there is no money to be made in preventing engrams. But assuming that Hubbard's theories are uncontestable scientific fact, wouldn't society be radically healthier within a generation if we discourage dialogue and excessive noise, such as sirens after traumatic events? Shouldn't there be a Citizens Commission for being quiet during accidents, a front group that would picket movies like Jack Reacher for setting a bad example of engram generating activity. Oh, Oscar, your question is just dripping with irony and sarcasm, uh, but it's a good one, and um, uh, and it's kind of funny uh, because, of course, what you're talking about here is in Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health in 1950, L. Ron Hubbard asserted that the single sole cause of all of our uh, psychosomatic illnesses, insanity, war, crime, poverty, every problem that we have socially and individually comes from this thing called the reactive mind. And the reactive mind is made up of engrams, and engrams are incidents, uh, events that happen to you that contain pain and unconsciousness. 
If something happens to you and it was painful and you went unconscious, even for a microsecond or two, that's an engram. And those engrams are stored in your reactive mind. And a part of their content is the words that were said. And the words that were said by people around you, words have meaning, right? And so later on, when the pain is approximated in the real world, you've moved on. It's a year later. It's two years. It's three years later. And here you are, and you know you got bit by a dog years ago, and here's a dog barking right now, and it kind of reminds you subconsciously of the same dog that bit you because it's the same breed, or it makes the same noises or something, or it's the same color, or you're in the same location. For whatever reason, enough of the, of the present situation is approximating the past one, and so you start hurting, and the reactive mind is turning on and telling you to avoid this dog and avoid this dog sound. But it's, but it's doing it all subconsciously. And the words that were said back when you were hurt, when you got, when you got uh, bit by the dog, could have been words like, oh, my God, look out. Oh, man, that must hurt. Oh, geez, are you okay? You know, maybe people around you saying things. Oh, God, that's going to hurt. You know, stuff like that. Well, those words are part of the engram. And so, according to L. Ron Hubbard, now, none of this is true. Okay, none of this is true, but this is L. Ron Hubbard's theory, quote unquote, from Dianetics, is that those words are going to influence you. And because they have meaning and because they have significance, when the reactive mind starts feeding them to you later, they're going to act like commands. So when, you're, when you hear the words, oh man, that's going to hurt. That somebody, you know, kind of innocently or jokingly said when you got bit by a dog, now later on that acts like a command. And so you hurt all over or your hand hurts or wherever it was that you got bit hurts. Or, But generally the words are, oh, that's going to hurt. So whatever, however that's interpreted in the moment, oh, now I hurt. And you have all this pain all of a sudden. You have no idea why. And it's, if, it's, and if it was really bad, according to Hubbard where maybe this was your dog and the dog was barking all the time and constantly keeping that engram in re-stimulation, meaning that it's, it's kind of subconsciously activated, then you're always going to hurt. And so here you have this new chronic pain that you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know why you have it. But every time you're around the dog, you hurt. Or every time the dog starts barking, you hurt. And you don't know why. And you don't connect it to the dog. So this is all the theory of Dianetics, according to L. Ron Hubbard, okay? So this is why you got to be quiet when somebody is injured or hurt or in an accident, because those words could come back later if you're, not, if, you're, if you're incautiously or saying things or throwing words around to an accident victim or somebody who's in the middle of an engram, then you are potentially setting them up for failure or even mental or physical chronic illness in the future, because that's how powerful these engrams are, according to L. Ron Hubbard. Again, none of this is true. But if it were, then this whole society would be benefited greatly by people shutting up every time somebody was hurt. Because then they wouldn't have that engramic content coming back on them. And Hubbard talks about this in Dianetics. And there is uh, active efforts made when Scientologists are hurt to shut up. Don't say anything. Don't, you know, quiet. Be quiet around injured people. This is a policy in Scientology. But it's not a policy in the big wide world. Nobody else really cares about this. Uh, by the way, if you've ever heard of a silent birth, 
um, you know, and, and anything related to Dianetics or Scientology and silent birth, this is why. Because even as a baby, you're being born, it's a moment of pain and unconsciousness, and you're going to experience that as a, as a newborn baby, and all the words that are being said are going right into your little baby reactive mind, and they're going to haunt you later unless the birth is silent, right? Uh, which is a damn near impossible event because birth is usually pretty painful. Uh, so keeping quiet during that is a challenge to say the least and completely, of course, unnecessary because none of this is, is actually true. So uh, as far as the uh, hypocrisy of it, you know, with what you're saying here or the idea that, hey, how come there isn't a citizen's commission for you know, being quiet during accidents. <laughs> well, it's exactly like you said in your question. It's because it, there's no money to be made in that. There's no money to be made in that. Believe me, there, I'm sure Hubbard tried to figure that out. He tried so many angles when he was uh, building Scientology through the 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, he was always forwarding some new club, some new activity, some new social thing that was going to sweep the nation, take over the world, you know, get Scientology in every home. Hubbard was always looking for those and looking for those angles. So it's very possible that at one point there was an attempt or a thought of a citizen's commission for being quiet during accidents, but there's no money to be made in that. So uh, that's, and, and because Scientology at the end of the day is a money-making scam, the question answers itself. Barney Saunders. At any point when you were a Scientologist, did it become apparent to you that there were many things that people outside of Scientology knew that Scientologists didn't? For example, but not exclusively, OT3 and Xenu. Did you ever ponder upon how it was that non-Scientologists could know such things? Barney, thank you very much for this question. This is a really good one because it brings me to mind. I get to say one of the things I, one of my, one of my favorite sayings now. Uh, which, I, which I actually keep on a post-it note here because it's such an uh, important piece of information for me and I love passing it on, which is people make themselves stupid in order to hold on to their belief. Um, when I was a Scientologist, I would see that people had posted confidential information online or had heard or we would hear about people out there, squirrels, they were routinely 100% called. They were referred to all the time as squirrels. And they were former Scientologists, so they were, you know, somehow off the rails, had gone off the reservation, had gone nuts as far as we were concerned. When I was a Scientologist, I thought in very simple terms when it came to stuff like this. And it was very easy for me to think in simple terms because I had a belief I had a set of beliefs that I needed to hold on to. And in order to hold on to those beliefs, I had to ignore or just nullify this information, this counter information that would attack my beliefs. And so I could not allow that any former Scientologist would ever be telling the truth about Scientology. I bought into the propaganda line from OSA, from the Office of Special Affairs, and from Hubbard that every single ex-Scientologist is a liar, is a scumbag, has overts, right, as, as, as moral transgressions against Scientology. And it was those overts that were causing them to complain and be critical. It was the missed withholds, right, that whole thing. 
all of that, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you got to check out my podcast a couple weeks ago where I, I go into the thought policing in Scientology. And I break all this down, this missed withhold thing. This was, this was powerful stuff. So powerful that I was able to use this not just to police my own thinking, but to police other people's thinking. Because if they're saying nasty stuff about Scientology, I don't need to listen to a word of it. Because it's all vicious lies that are just coming out of their misdwithholds, their overts, their sins. And so none of what they have to say has any value whatsoever. If I want to know about Scientology, the only source for me is L. Ron Hubbard. And nobody else has anything else important to say about it. That's how I used to think. And I would keep myself stupid by thinking that way. But that's, that's how it went. So when you ask... How, you know, when I see people who are not Scientologists, now I'm talking, I, I was mostly ragging on former members there, but I would assume that if somebody was never a Scientologist and they were talking trash about Scientology or Hubbard or Miscavige or the Sea Org or any aspect of it, either A, they had no clue what they were talking about because they were never a Scientologist, so how could they? Or two, they were reading ex-Scientologists and their lies and their propaganda and their indoctrination and their nonsense and their bullshit, right? I mean, you, you can use all of the tools of critical thinking. It's sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, mal-critical thinking, like bad critical thinking. It's just, you know, you can, you can take all the principles and you can turn them on their ear and apply them to nullify truth, Right, Because remember, our brains are not don't, don't exist to sort out objective truth. We only need a story that makes sense to us. And the story that made sense to me when I was a Scientologist is that former Scientologists would leave because of their overts and would, and would, and would then try to corrupt and tarnish and ruin Scientology. And Scientology is the only road out. Scientology is the only hope we have. So these are the bad guys. So I'm going to listen to them? Uh-uh. No way. I don't care what they have to say. I don't care. Right? They're evil, and they must be destroyed. And that's how I thought about those people as a Scientologist. So, you know, so that was about as much thinking as I had to do about it. And that's how, that's, that, that's like the, you know, the, the harsh reality of how thought policing, that, that sort of self-thought policing worked for me. And it, was, and it was powerful stuff. So you can understand why it took so long and why it would take, when you're in a headspace like that, why it would take a personal affront of magnitude. It would take some kind of blow to you, something to literally snap you out of it, to wake you up. I mean, that's kind of, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just, a, it's just words to express the idea. You're not really asleep. You're very awake, if anything. I mean, you know, when I was a Sea Org member and a Scientologist, I felt like I was, you know, energized and on fire a lot because of the power of that belief and the and the the um, feeling of uh, power, the, you know, the empowerment that that made me feel. So, uh, so I felt the exact opposite of asleep, but I, you know, mentally speaking and critically thinking wise, I was. I was totally asleep at the wheel. I wasn't applying any critical thinking to this stuff. So that's kind of how I dealt with that. And I believe that I was not far, I was far from alone in how I would process information like that as a Scientologist. And so I thought, 
uh, that might be of, uh, you know, describing all that. I hope that answers that question. And uh, yeah, you know, that was that was how I basically interpreted non-Scientologists or enemies of the church and what they had to say about it. Sonia, I'm interested in learning more about Narconon. I've seen the group documentary and some news reports about destructive cults that use things like the Alcoholics Anonymous curriculum and severely distort them to control people, take their money, and abuse them. Is it similar with Scientology and Narconon, or is it just the purification rundown scam? Thanks for raising awareness about Scientology and other destructive groups. All right, Sonia, thank you for this question. Narconon is pure Scientology. Uh, it, is, it has been secularized, which means they've sort of removed some of the Scientology-specific jargon and the organizational titling and some of the other stuff that gets into Hubbard's, you know, sort of uh, Scientology-specific stuff. But it's still the, the techniques, the methods, the commands, the processes, all pure Scientology. So it doesn't draw from AA or other programs. It doesn't have to. It's drawing from its own core of awful, which is Scientology. And the Narconon program is Scientology's expression of how they think people need to be treated in order to be gotten off of, um, you know, high control drug uh, or harmful, you know, uh, chemicals and stuff like that. Um, they're totally wrong. I mean, it's, it doesn't, you know, it helps in about the same percentage of people that every other, um, rehab facility sort of helps with. And I have to be honest, I think for the most part, a lot of those percentages are basically chance percentages. I mean, I'm not saying the entire rehab, you know, uh, industry is just full of shit, but they are kind of full of more, you know, full of more shit than they are not in many, many ways, especially here in the United States. So, um, you know, there is not a whole lot of standardized, uh, rigorously studied, you know, really hard science on how to deal with addiction. Um, and addiction is something that people are still figuring out in so many ways. Um, nature, nurture, society versus personal responsibility. There's a lot of layers to this very, very deep and important problem. So Scientology is only bringing its shallow nonsense to it in order to make more money by saying, hey, it's real simple. If you're on drugs, it's because you have some emotional problem or a problem you're trying to solve. We're going to sort that out with auditing. But first, you need to purify your body, cleanse it of all the harmful toxins. And that's the purification sweat out sauna program, which is just total horseshit. But that's the first step, followed by a series, a battery of processes you're going to do called the objectives, where we're going to sort of slam you in present time and get you in the here and now so you can think with what's happening around you right now and you can see the environment, what it's all about. And then we're going to give you um, training on what this is all about. We're going to make you sit in a chair and confront other people and actually look at them in the eye and talk to them and listen to them and deal with them. And then we're going to have you do these other drills where you're going to walk people's bodies around. Your body's going to get walked around. You're going to learn how to control other people. You're going to learn how to be controlled so that you can improve your ability to control yourself. And then we're going to do these other trainings, these other classes in Scientology so you'd understand some grammar and some uh, ethics and some morals and some, you know, you have a good base and foundation for ethical decisions in your life. And then we're going to set you loose in the big wide world again and call you a done 
deal and you'll be off the drugs and everything will be great. And if that program worked any better than any other rehab program works, then we would know about it by now because there have been studies, there has been research, there's been a lot of work done on this. And instead, Narconon is down to something like 10 facilities in the entire United States now. Um, they have had criminal prosecution. There have been deaths. This has been exposed. You know, Scientology's drug rehab program is a complete joke. It is destructive. It is harmful. It does not get the job done. And while I describe to you a series of steps that ideally would produce this product of a person who is detoxified and in present time and able to deal with his life, that's not what Scientology actually produces. That's just what they say they're producing. Narconon facilities have been shown to be rife with drugs. They are they're staffed by people who have done the program themselves and then reverted back to drugs. And so, you know, these facilities can become little drug emporiums. It's, it, you know, and, and these are not problems unique to Scientology's drug rehab. Drug rehab is a tough, tough industry to work in. Uh, it is a thankless job in many ways, <laughs> you know, and Scientology is not leading the charge in how to deal with this. So that's my, um, you know, off the cuff uh, criticism and, and analysis of Narconon. And I hope it helps clarify that situation there and, and your, your question, Sonia. So thanks for asking. All right, everybody. So that has been our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me babble on here as I do every week. And of course, like I said, if you uh, like the show and want to support it, Sign up with my, with me on Patreon. Uh, the link is below. Or you can always just send me a one-off through PayPal. That is always love that I like to receive as well. Thanks, guys, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.